Welcome back to the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and what matters. Sentientism answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings, all beings that are capable of experiencing suffering. In this episode, I talked to Kevin Saldana. Kevin is a vet based in Ontario, Canada. He grew up in East Africa and Goa in India and then moved to Canada. He's held leadership roles originally in Catholic community organizations and more recently in humanist community organizations. I'd love to know what you think of the podcast, so why not write a review or give us some stars on your platform? And you can find out more about sentientism at sentientism.info or just search for the word sentientism on your favorite social media platform. You'd be made very welcome in any of our global community groups. They're open to anyone interested, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. So good morning, Kevin. How are you? Oh, doing well over here in Canada. We've got a nice sunny day out today, so we're hoping to do a walk this afternoon. Good to hear it. Get out and get some fresh air. Thank you so much for making the time to join these series of sentientist conversations. It's a pleasure <laughs> to talk to you. We've, all we've done is Twitter so far, so it's great to have a, uh, a proper conversation. And as we've talked about, this series of conversations are trying to focus in on the two deepest philosophical questions, really, what's real and what matters. And we're trying to understand people's personal philosophical journey as they worked out how to answer those questions and also think about some of the implications for the future if we can get more people to think our, think in our way of thinking. And, and in that context, sentientism tries to answer those two questions in a very simple way. It says we should use evidence and reason when thinking about what to believe in. When it comes to what matters morally, the clue is in the name, it focuses on sentience, the capacity to have subjective experiences, to experience suffering or flourishing as how we should dis- decide which entities, which things matter morally. But I'm having these conversations with people who disagree with sentientism, who agree with sentientism, so don't feel restricted in any way. We'll just see where the conversation goes. Absolutely. And before we start on those two questions, it would be great if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, uh, your life, your work, and your focus. That's a big question. (laughs) As long as you like. I'm I'm going to be 64 in two weeks, and so... Happy birthday. Thank you. Spent a, a long time thinking about this, but I came to a realization a little later in life that uh, there was more to the, the rat race, so to say. And it was around the 9-11 issues that I started thinking about what what really mattered in life. And uh, through that experience where... I saw people going to work in the morning and not coming home that evening. It changed the way I looked at life and what is important for all of us. And so I thought at that point that my practice was doing, I'm a veterinarian by uh, profession and I live in Canada, got my own practice, had it for the last 30 years. So everything was going great with that, but there still seemed to be something missing. So I thought, let's try and change the thing that we can change in our lives. And part of that was trying to grapple with my weight problem that I've had for most of my life. Not uh, serious, always just pushing the edge of that (laughs) BMI that you're supposed to be within. And so I joined the men's weight loss group here in Toronto. And through that process, started thinking about different ways to exercise, to eat healthy. And one of the things that came up with that was having a background where we ate a lot of meat. I come from a little place in India called Goa. And although I was born in East Africa and Kenya, 
I spent formative years in Goa, and my parents um, are or were religious, uh, my mother more than my dad. My dad was going to become a Jesuit priest at one point, wow. and he left that. But my mom was the, the more faithful in the family, and so she uh, would keep the family together, going through Sunday Masses and things like that. Goa is uh, a colony of Portugal in, on the west coast of India, and that Portuguese influence besides bringing the religion to to Goa, they brought their meat-eating habits. So a lot of the traditional dishes were always meat-based. Yeah. And it would be good to, I guess, the, the first question we're asking these conversations is what's real. So we'll come back to the, the animal ethics and the ethical side later on. But that might be quite good to start with that religious upbringing you had because that's a common story people are telling in these conversations is whether they grew up in a naturalistic or an atheistic household or whether they grew up in a religious household and how that shifted over time so it sounds like the household you grew up in was quite strongly religious as you say you know absolutely and what was what was the characteristic of it was it just to explain to people who don't understand the full variety of christianity what variety was it and roman how did that affect your life yeah i was portuguese context yeah yeah, and the Catholicism was practiced, and I guess from a perspective that we went to church every Sunday, and it was a big part. Rosary was a big part of home activities, and yeah. seeing the Angelus in the evening at sunset and things like that. Those were all part of my growing up. Yeah, and it was the, the whole. Even in Goa, when we went back from East Africa to Goa. The village activities, I come from a little village called Saligao in, in the northern part of Goa, and the village activities all are basically revolved around the church activities. So it was inseparable. Even though there were Hindus in the village, our whole social circle was Catholic, yeah. and everything revolved around church activities. And it's one thing that many people don't understand about India is the sheer diversity of religions in the country. I mean, everyone's very aware of Hindu influence and the Muslim presence as well. But there, as you say, there are oh, yeah. denominations from many other religions, including Christianity there as well. So on the West Coast, Goa is, is now I think it's probably about less than 30% Christian. Mm. But at one point, it was up to 15-60% Christian. And then further down the coast in Kerala, there were there's a, a lot of Christian populations which are not Catholic, but Syrian Christians mm. and other denominations. Yeah. And what was your, at what point did you start to question that context? And were you personally quite invested in it? Did you believe? Were you following along happily? Or at what point were you starting to think uh, a little bit more critically about the religious context you'd grown up in? Well, most of my life, it was a part of an obligation that we had to go to church every Sunday, pray whether you prayed for stuff or for success in exams. I remember my mom used to do a, a novena for us. Every time we had an exam, she'd do a novena, which every hour she'd pray on her knees in front of a lighted candle at an altar in our house for our success in that exam. Well, given you became a vet, it clearly worked. So <laughs> I have her to thank for that. <laughs> yeah, it was definitely part of the, the life. But as I got married, I came out to Canada. Interestingly enough, that's a whole nother story. But my wife and I were actually family friends and schoolmates going back in East Africa in grade one and two. 
Oh, wow. And, and then uh, she, their family moved to Canada. We moved to India. She grew up over here and then she wanted to visit her grandmother in, in Goa. And that's where we met again. And, and I was finishing vet school at that time. And somehow things happened to work out and ended up getting married. So uh, wonderful. that's how I ended up in Canada. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But coming to Canada... Uh, again, her family was quite religious, and so I fit in well with that part of it. And then, as I said, after 9-11, this whole issue with, with the church came to a head because prior to that, I was actually quite involved with the building of a new church in Mississauga. Mm. And I got involved with the Knights of Columbus, which is the Catholic uh, men's organization here. And so through that, I started understanding a little bit more about the workings of the church and, and the manipulation that goes on. And it was, it all came together, the weight loss program with giving up meat, the understanding of the, the workings of the church and everything else all seemed to come to a head around when I was about 44, 45. Yeah. And I guess... At that point, I started thinking that there's got to be something that's true and something that's not true, and which is, and it was a conversation with the priest of the church who I was really good friends with, and we were talking about souls of animals. Yeah, it, it was an interesting conversation. I think uh, you may have uh, read a little bit about that. In that little chapter that I have, there was an optometrist in the states who was writing a book called Faith Beyond Belief. And she decided to take my story. She saw it online somewhere and, and she called me up and interviewed me for that uh, chapter. But it was that confluence of different things that came together that I had to eventually make a choice of whether my belief in a supernatural deity and my efforts to promote that were the right way to go. And then that's when I started reading into evolution a little bit more and yeah. understanding souls of animals and had this conversation with the priest over what I wanted to institute in the church that I was helping build to have a blessing of the pets at the church. And he argued against it, and he said, animals don't have the same souls that we do. Yeah. And it was through that conversation that for the first time after practicing veterinary medicine for almost 20 years and thinking that we'll meet up with the pets that we live with, not once thinking about the animals we ate, but just having that comfort knowing that in the afterlife, we'd probably meet up with them, uh, like we'd meet up with all the relatives that we lost. Yeah. And so it was that conversation that kind of started changing things for me and making me think about, do animals actually have an afterlife? And what is that? And so that's where my descended in disbelief <laughs> yeah. started and it's interesting because as, as as you trained as a vet obviously you've would have had a very rich scientific study and training as you were going through that and learning about evolution and learning about the reality of animal anatomy and so on did you ever find a struggle to reconcile that with religious belief or did they feel that they were compatible or just distinct areas that you didn't distinct areas absolutely yeah. kept them separate never even thought to try and reconcile the two yeah. It, it was my beliefs were completely different from my knowledge. And it was when I started trying to reconcile those two that things started falling apart. Yeah. 
That's interesting. Of, and from the conversations I've had, there there are some people whose journey away from a religious way of thinking has been about evidence and reason and hold on, I just don't see the evidence anymore. I just don't believe in the facts and and the things I'm supposed to believe. For other people, it's more about experiencing some of the difficult and dam- sometimes damaging ethics in religious ways of thinking and saying that whether it's homophobia or sexism or uh, animal discrimination, saying that can't be right. And that's the trigger. And it sounds like it was a bit of a mix for you. It was a combination of it was thinking about the animal ethics question and going, how can you just disregard their moral value, but also something about the facts and the evidence and the epistemology as well. Right. And homophobia, <laughs> he brought it up, but that played a little role in it too, because at that time, the Canadian government was debating on legalizing same-sex marriages. Yeah. And I was with the Knights of Columbus, which was having a postcard campaign to write to politicians to say, no, this shouldn't be allowed. And I said, but that's strange. Homosexuality is a normal part of life. Yeah. And why should we deny those people their their rights to a happy life? So, And I started arguing with the Knights of Columbus about this. And, and that's when, too, I started thinking, this is strong-arming uh, the religious people into a decision and then bordering on political interference as well. So, yeah. Was it quite a quick change or was it a gradual process of just these different factors building up in your mind? It happened over a year. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) In fact, I remember at the beginning of that year, it was uh, 2002, I guess it would have been because 2001, September 2001 was the incident in New York. And it was over over 2002, I had actually put in my submission to be a trustee for the Catholic School Board in February. And through that year, by November, when we had to confirm it, I pulled out my uh, application because by then I had made a 180 degree turn. Yeah. I was going in the other direction. And was it was it quite an easy process for you or was it difficult? And that both personally, did it feel like you were giving up a lot or there was turmoil internally but also socially was it a difficult thing to do socially given how important the church was to your friendships and your community and and even family so personally i don't know whether it was a bit of rebellion in me at that point where i said i started reading about evolution and this whole issue with the soul and how animal souls differ from human souls and where did that difference come in because through evolution, you know that's a gradual change. But suddenly humans are infused with this special soul. Yeah. And that was the concept that I had to get past. I wasn't even thinking about the existence of God at that point. It was just, what is this difference in the souls? And yeah. when I tried to question that logically, where did the soul come into the body? And there's all kinds of theological things that, you know, at conception or at birth or with the first breath or (laughs) when the fetus starts moving, the soul is implanted or whatever it is. But then from an evolutionary point of view as well, because if there's a gradual change in, in the evolution of man, we know that we had a common ancestor with the chimpanzees probably six, seven thousand million, six, seven million years ago. And going back from that, we had common ancestry with all life forms on Earth, including plants. 
at some point. Yeah. So when you think of it from that perspective, it doesn't make sense that suddenly a special soul was infused. So that's the first concept that kind of hit the rocks for me. And, and then I realized if we don't have a soul, then is there anything else beyond this life? Yeah. What is that? And, and then the whole concept of God and everything else falls apart. Yeah. And what was that like socially? Was that challenging socially or was it fairly comfortable? At the beginning, it was a challenge because I was, uh, as I said, I was with the Knights of Columbus. Mm. I was actually a counselor with Colombian Squires, which is a youth group of the Knights. And I was leading you know, 30, 40 young boys in prayer and in activities and all that to strengthen their faith. And that was the first thing that I felt I couldn't do that comfortably and asked to be relieved of those duties. And that was a loss to me because I really enjoyed doing that. And then my whole social circle, too, was completely through the church. Our intimate friends were church-going. Relatives, obviously, were and still are practicing Catholics. Mm. My wife still is a believer. But from that, I was fortunate that the core group of our friends tried to understand what I was going through and... I guess still pray for my soul. Yeah. Pray that I come back to the church and feel that I'm on a journey. And 20 years later, this journey is pretty much uh, a one-way path for me. Yeah. Yeah. I've already told them that if anything changes with the way I believe the world to be today, it's probably because I may have had a stroke or some kind of uh, <laughs> an aneurysm or something that's changed the way my brain works because there's absolutely yeah. no way that... I can accept the world today in any other way that, than, you know, a naturalistic worldview. Yeah. And I feel very much the same way. I think it's almost an attractor, whereas people, they might grow up religious and stay religious, but once they start to question, it seems inexorably many people are drawn to a more naturalistic worldview where they say, well, I'm going to choose to believe based on evidence from reality. And why would I ever go a different way? And uh, that seems to be the general flow. So most people are taught to be religious at birth, from birth by parents and society and by school. So that gives them a default starting point. But then there is a somewhat inexorable drift for many people to a naturalistic worldview. Now, I, it's, it's interesting because some people do leave a religious worldview, but there's something they want to hold on to from that, whether it's a sense of connectedness with the universe or the sense that there's something transcendent or something bigger than ourselves. And for me... I feel all those things, but I address them from a completely naturalistic world worldview point of view. So I feel a sense of awe and connectedness and wonder in the fact that I'm part of something much larger just because of physics and <laughs> understanding reality. But some people do leave religion, but then they turn to something that's more amorphous, something that still has a sense of the mystical or the spiritual or they've left a formal organized organized religion but they've still got some supernatural elements to their worldview and it doesn't feel like i certainly don't but it doesn't feel like you've felt that temptation either you haven't felt some sort of need to connect with the transcendent or the magical not at all unfortunately yeah. and and uh, the only thing that i really missed was a sense of community yeah and that i tried to recreate with a humanist community here in in the local area when i went through that I had no role models in my life that were atheists or, or non-believers. And I was very upset about the way I felt at the beginning. 
Unfortunately, the internet uh, was available at that time for me to go on to and see, am I the only person who thinks like this? Are there other people? Yeah. And then you you find atheist groups and you find other non-believing groups and all the rest of that. But I had to go, get past the infidel groups and the militant atheist groups and all to find humanism. And humanism was something that really uh, resonated with me. And then I looked out for local groups and there was uh, a group in Toronto, which was a little bit too far for me to attend meetings at. But then just around that same time, uh, a lady in a neighboring town of Oakville set up a group there. And so I joined that one. And that's my introduction to humanism. And and then eventually got onto the the organizing committee and, and then led the, the group for over a decade. So Yeah, and that's, a, I think, a reasonably common story people go to a sort of naturalistic worldview which right. doesn't necessarily say much about morality they're atheists they don't have a belief in god or they have a naturalistic way of thinking and they don't have a belief in the supernatural that doesn't necessarily say anything positive about our next question which is what matters and what's what matters morally what should we care about and that's quite a common path is for people to then move to humanism because humanism says we've got a naturalistic worldview. We believe based on evidence and reason, but then we layer onto that a universal compassion for all humans. And we see humans as worthwhile and valuable. And that's the root of the morality. But it's difficult because for many people who leave a religion, they do feel like they're losing the grounding of their morality. And I think they go through a process of struggling to work out what is the basis of their morality. So it sounds like that's part of the path that led you to humanism was that sort of compassion for humans as at least a base starting point for your morality. Is that fair to say? Uh, absolutely. I think one of the things that religion does really well is try and give us a sense of morality just through books and whatever, the the holy books, and this is right and this is wrong. Mm. And it's really heavy lifting to think those through for yourself, and it's even worse to try and raise children with the, a naturalistic worldview where morals are inherent in every human being rather than being written in a book. Yeah, a handy and list of rules. Exactly. Yeah, it, It's tough. And I find that even teenagers who may claim to be atheists as uh, an act of rebellion, don't want to go to church or something like that, they grow up into their 20s and then when they get married in their 30s and have kids that's when they go back to religion. And it's interesting because you wonder, this guy was an atheist and, and now he's religious. And I think the main thing is not having the tools to be able to raise children without religion is difficult. So they go back to the church because the church has got everything set in, in a variety of ways. Like, I mean, I mean, from baptism onwards, you go to your first Holy Communion where you do stuff and then you've got your confirmation and all those little sacraments yeah. it's a road map that's laid out for you you don't have to do any thinking you don't have to do any hard work to try and to raise kids without that i like that way of putting it. it's almost like a road a rule book and a road map and it's comforting you can fit into it there's a community around it it's like a it's, it's an easy ready-made answer in a way right. of course and until you start looking too closely at what those rules are and whether they're well founded and you know the suffering they can sometimes cause so yeah, and the the conflict between different religions and, and the different yeah. sets of rules that everybody else has. Yeah. We touched on homophobia before, but there are religions today that condemn it by, with death. How can you 
And that's a, a mainstream religion, which is given all kinds of respect <laughs> yeah. and demands it too. So, uh, yeah, I find it bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. And and you've hinted at it already, but one critical um, point for many people is when they start to recognize or ask if there's moral value and worth in non-humans as well. So clearly sentientism is taking humanism that next step forward and saying it's not just humans that count morally, any being that is capable of experiencing suffering or flourishing, anything sentient warrants our compassion as well. But it would be interesting to know how you went through that journey as well, particularly as a vet, you're working with non-human animals every day and have done for decades. So what was your ethical journey about thinking through, uh, you know, non-human animal ethics? So something that a lot of people don't realize about vets is that training through vet school is to raise animals for food as well. Yeah. And so that's a big part of veterinary medicine. That's majority of the graduating class would go into small animal medicine where compassion and respect for that life and all this is paramount. But there's a percentage that go into large animal medicine where exploiting the animal as a food source, breeding it and raising it is just part of our uh, training. Yeah. And so you'll actually see veterinarians underrepresented in vegetarian societies. There was a study done where the empathy that students came into school with reduced every year, and it was lower at when they graduated than when they were accepted into vet school. Wow. Yeah. So that is that was something that opened my eyes to the fact that my daughter got into vet school and is a practicing vet today. And when she was in school, I, I never thought twice about having these animals for a study which had their ruminotomies. And I don't know what, whether, what a ruminotomy is, but it's a hole in the side of a, of a cow and they have a cap on it. And then you can take samples of uh, rumen stuff and all. And, and this is a living animal with a hole on its side with a, a screw cap on it. Yeah, essentially can, a port in the wall of the stomach, yeah. Exactly. And when I went to one of her open houses, something like that, and I saw this cow over there with the ruminotomy, and I just, I took a step back and I thought, wow, I remember doing that in vet school too, but it never hit me the way it did, it did <laughs> you know, now after becoming a vegetarian and, and trying to understand what we do to animals. So from that perspective, yeah, there is a small percentage of veterinarians who've, who've gone beyond that and have decided that all animals are worthy of our consideration and may even go vegan. Uh, I'm not vegan. I've tried it and, and I don't like to apply a label to myself. But as I said, the, the veterinary program itself is designed to reduce that empathy for certain classes of animals. And so here we are dividing animals in different classes based on their utility for us. And as a companion animal veterinarian, I sometimes feel that there are clients of mine or ex-clients, hopefully, that don't deserve to own pets. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you see that and you start thinking, what is the utility that the animal has for us? And, and there's several books we've written on this. The one that comes to mind is some we love, some we hate, and some we eat or something like that. You know? yeah. So it's, 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating because I think one of the things that's central to human ethics and human rights thinking is something we all, I think, do reasonably naturally. Sorry, my sentient companion animal is... What's up? What's up, Luna? <laughs> Why don't you go for a walk? <laughs> yeah, she's been introduced on a few of these videos already. But she, but with human ethics, we're used to the concept that it's really important to try and take the perspective of the other person. So you imagine you are them and you think from their perspective and that affects our ethics, our human ethics, you know, our, our sense of empathy, our sense of compassion. And it's really that way of thinking that's driven a lot of human rights thinking or this concept of humanism about universal compassion for all humans. We're used to putting ourselves in the perspective of the other human, but for most people's way of thinking about non-human uh, animals, even where there is genuine compassion, it still seems to be largely driven by what I as a human need and what I as a human want. So Absolutely. people will say, I'm an animal lover, or I really care about wildlife, or the list might go on. Or they, they obviously um, very commonly have a really rich family relationship with companion animals. But the average person on the planet cares about charismatic wildlife because they enjoy watching them and they like this sort of human aesthetic appreciation of nature and they like watching nature programs and it feels you know exciting and fun to watch it's not really a feeling for the lion or the zebra or the elephant directly it's about what humans enjoy from observing wildlife and being in wildlife non-charismatic wildlife is largely written off because unless they're really interesting to look at or pretty or fun they're largely irrelevant so whenever it comes to non-charismatic wildlife particularly where it starts to cause challenges for humans and or get in our way the default answer is let's just cull them and kill them all whether it's overpopulation or whether it's invasive species or whatever the problem is that quite often is a default answer with companion animals as you say quite often there's a genuine compassionate relationship there but sometimes there isn't sometimes it is more this animal is here really for my amusement it's like a toy it's like a something to have fun with but am i really taking the perspective of the camp companion animal so even with companion animals there's and you hinted at it there already there are many different pet owner perspectives about their companion animals some have had deeper compassion than others and of course farmed animals are a special case where as you said even vets whose in a way entire career is supposed to be enhancing the life and well-being of non-human animals many of them are trained explicitly to assume that it's okay to pay other people to torture and kill those non-human animals as well it is genuinely i think it's an interesting perspective if you think about how humans categorize animals it's normally just about what the humans want it's not really a genuine compassion for the the sentient being at the other end of whatever the interaction is i've somewhat tritely said that's why we want charismatic wildlife to live because we enjoy it living and we want farmed animals to die because we enjoy eating their flesh so it's a strange perspective that is very much focused on the human perspective it's not really a genuine compassion for the other sentient being and without i don't want to rant too much but it does feel that as with human ethics when you genuinely identify with the perspective of the other person the scales fall away and you can understand the suffering or the flourishing or the experience they're going through and you feel that direct compassion so many of the you know, moral and ethical uncertainties fall away. But it's very rare for people to do that with non-human animals. But it, the same thing works for me. As soon as you think from the perspective of the fish or the chicken or the pig or the cow, 
and you imagine what they're actually going through because of the decisions we take, all of a sudden things seem very clear to me. But uh, Absolutely. I, I'm ranting too much. I'm no, supposed no, to be no, listening no, to you. But you brought up an interesting point where before I came across your site, Don, sent you into them, and I was trying to see because in atheist circles, you see a high percentage of vegetarians yeah. or vegans. And in vegetarian circles, you see a high percentage of non-believers. But nobody had put those two together until like, I, I saw that you had thought this through and, and come up with the sentientism as a philosophy that goes beyond humanism. And, and I really appreciated that. And when I started reading more into it, and I haven't read everything on your side, obviously, but <laughs> a lot of it resonates with me. And I think that's really important. That's where we need to focus. I'm more active on Facebook than I am on Twitter, but I've had to block several of my non-believer friends because of their comments or their emoticons that have come up on my vegetarian posts. I'll forward something that I've seen that might be interesting to me in terms of vegetarianism and how it impacts the planet and how it impacts our lives and how it impacts non-human animal lives and things like that. And I get pushed back. Yeah, the meat eaters are one category who push back on that. But the people who are supposed to be on my side are also militantly carnist about what they should, what what their tastes should allow. Yeah, I find it strange and frustrating. And thanks for your kind words about the sentientism idea. And it's not one I've created either. So the term has been around since the 1970s. And but it was very much an academic term within the animal ethics field. And it was always or well, is largely framed by people like Peter Singer and Richard Ryder in a naturalistic context. So the idea was that it didn't use religious ideas of dominion or stewardship or souls uh, to grant moral consideration. It said, look, let's look at the scientific understanding of sentience and let's grant moral consideration on that basis. So in a way, certainly the main people who used the term originally always framed it naturalistically. And in a way, all I've done is pick that term up and suggest that we make that naturalism much broader. So we don't just apply it when thinking about moral consideration. We also, like humanism, apply naturalism in every domain to all of our beliefs, as well as to moral consideration. But it does feel like it fits. And part of my motivation for popularizing the term and developing it and building some of the online communities around it, which has been fascinating, the variety of people that got involved, was partly because of that frustration I felt with atheist and humanist movements, because I think you're right that the anecdotally, the, it seems that atheists and humanists are much more likely to be vegan than the general population. And this, the same is true the other way around. But at the same time, as you've already said, there are many humanists who are in a way very proud of the fact that they've turned away from social indoctrination and they've turned away from dogma and they're following evidence and reason to a more compassionate way of doing ethics. I seem very pleased with that, but seem completely blind to the indoctrination they're still trapped by, which teaches them that it's completely acceptable to cause catastrophic suffering because you like the taste or you think something's normal. So in a way, I find myself getting even more frustrated with humanists who don't grant moral consideration to non-human animals because I have higher expectations of humanists because you're supposed to be committed to evidence, reason, and compassion. And if your compassion stops at the human species or is just the human species 
plus companion animals and charismatic wildlife, but you'll quite happily consume meat, eggs, and dairy and uh, discount that suffering completely. With that level of cognitive dissonance, I understand it in the average person on the street, but I really struggle to understand it when it's coming from a humanist. And it's very true of even many of the you know, very vocal public intellectual humanist leaders who I respect their intellect and their ethical thinking enormously. And I think that humanism is a force for good, but some of them are deeply anthropocentric in the way they think, and they're still trapped by this social indoctrination around. And they still suffer from that cognitive dissonance where they've gone in in great strides in one direction and seem to just shut off this other part of of what we consider to be just natural progression of that humanism. Exactly. And they're just as trapped by dogma as the religious people they criticize, but seem blind to it. It's, it's bizarre. So in the same way as sometimes religion and the supernatural is like kryptonite to otherwise very brilliant people. They have a mental block when it comes to the religion and the supernatural. It feels like non-human animal ethics is like kryptonite to many prominent humanists. And yeah, it's I, I get more <laughs> frustrated with them than anyone. <laughs> right, right. But we'll see. I think, but and to be more positive... There, as you say, there's already more overlap. I think humanists are already more likely to be vegan than non-humanists. Some of the prominent humanist organisations, so Humanists International and Humanists UK, for example, have already updated their definitions of humanism to include concern for other sentient animals in their definitions, which is you know, a really positive step. But it still remains that almost all of their content, almost all of their programs, almost all of their campaigns are entirely focused on humans. Yeah, there's work to do. And hopefully the this sentientism idea in our community will at least increase the pressure on humanists well, to get a little bit more I, serious about non-humans. I guess it's baby steps. So I'm pleased when I hear some of our humanist fellows claim that they're flexitarian. I mean, it's, it's a baby yeah. step towards, you know. But flexitarian is obviously something that gives them something to hide behind saying, yes, we've got some consideration for... <laughs> and I think this is, this is one of the difficulties, and obviously this is a very fiery debate in animal advocacy circles, because I think many people recognise that, but given how powerful the social indoctrination is, that some people do need to take steps, progressive steps, go on a journey to try and reduce the harm they cause. But other people are very se- sceptical of that because it feels rather than it being a journey with an end point, it's just provides them a sort of safer place to stop before they've really gone as far as they could so it's a tricky topic yeah Mm. but to to the final part of the conversation i'd like to have with you really is i try and set a sort of optimistic tone for the end of the conversation and you can put me right if you like um but if you imagine we're in the strange situation where i think you and i share a naturalistic worldview and we share a worldview that says needlessly causing suffering to any sentient being is a moral negative. doesn't mean it's always avoidable, but it's a, we should try to reduce that sort of suffering. But given the inertia of social norms around the world, most of the 8 billion people on the planet disagree with us, either because they have a religious supernatural worldview or because they exclude some forms of sentient being from their moral consideration, at least practically. If you can imagine a world where we could radically change people's perspectives so more people agreed with us, what do you think that future might look like and how can you make how do you think we can make it happen and you can think very long term if you like and think into a sci-fi utopian future what that might look like or you can think more immediately about the changes how we can drive good changes now so from that perspective i think changes are already happening 
yeah. people are beginning to understand the connection between eating meat and our personal health, the connection between meat eating and the planetary health. And for those reasons, there are people who are thinking about it twice. They may not go all the way down the philosophical route to say, I'm going to be a vegan tomorrow. But at least the mindset is changing. And I have a feeling that uh, those, rather than trying to convince people of the intrinsic moral value of non-human animals, make it look from a selfish point of view, look after your health, and this is going to help you. There were those studies that have been done where a whole food, plant-based diet is uh, can reverse diabetes. And those are things that suddenly people say, wow, eating animals is, is not the best thing for us. And yes, there's uh, the smell and the taste of steak on the barbecue, something like that <laughs> is appealing to the whole neighborhood sometimes when you... <laughs> but... At the same time, that can be off-putting when your mind has changed to a certain extent that you smell that the smell and it's really almost like a crematorium yeah. <laughs> in the neighborhood. So I, I, I don't know whether we've, we've got, unfortunately, what happens is when you see countries like um, India and China, where the middle class is is growing at such a, a rate where now they're able to afford what they couldn't afford before. And that a lot of the social status comes from meat eating. Yeah. Even in countries like India, where vegetarianism was the norm. Yeah. Now they're, they're eating much more meat. In fact, this uh, Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine had to send a delegation to India to encourage vegetarianism. And, you know, that's... Uh, Unheard of. Yeah. yeah. Besides the Indian healthcare system not being able to cope with the amount of cardiovascular disease that's going to result from that, it's it's upsetting uh, when you hear about how uh, Chinese are just decimating the oceans for what their shark fin soup or whatever it is, and that becomes again, if I can afford it, I'll I'll buy it and I'll I'll pay for it. Now. Yeah, and I think you're right in that. I'd love it. I'd love moral argument to have more weight and to drive more change. And it does with some people. There are some people who think things through, or they listen, or they read, or they watch a documentary, and their ethics shift, and they are committed enough to take a different decision. But that there aren't enough of those people, frankly. So I think you're right that some of those are, and it's also difficult con to condemn a system that you're part of while right. you're part of it. Whereas if some of those other motivations, whether it's health or antimicrobial resistance and climate change and zoonotic disease, obviously with things like COVID, those right. other reasons keep building up to try and take people away from consuming animal products. And as the alternatives get better, plant-based meats, clean-based meats, the, the alternatives of taste and texture and availability and price get so compelling. I think that combination of motives and the availability of the alternatives will make more people just switch away from animal products. And that will then free them to update their ethics because once you're no longer consuming animal products it's much easier to say oh yes and it was wrong because of the suffering as well so ironically that's what, sorry yeah that's what happened with me as i said through this yeah. process of trying to lose weight you started with I, health yeah i started with health i dropped meat from my diet for and it was i, I still remember the feast of saint francis xavier is the fourth of december and 
St. Francis Xavier is a, a very highly regarded saint in Goa. And so there's always anywhere in the world where there are go- there's a Goan community, there'll be a feast day celebration. And I happened to come back from the meeting that uh, Sunday and we were going for the celebration here in, in Toronto. And <clears throat> I told my wife, I think I'm going to go vegetarian today. I'm not going to eat any meat. And she said, if you can walk past that buffet with all the traditional meat dishes over there and not eat any of them, you've got half a chance. And I said, it's only one meal of one day. Why don't I do that? And then I said, well, I was able to do that on that day where there was such enticing food on the table. Why don't I go another day and three days in a week? And that became two weeks and months and years. And it's been almost 20 years now that I've been yeah. a vegetarian. But it started from there that for my health. And so it changed everything else that I gave up during that time when I lost a whole bunch of weight has come back into my life. The refined flaws and sugars and <laughs> alcohol and everything else. But me didn't come back because it had changed me philosophically yeah and and that's where my journey started even into everything else i tell people today just treat vegetarianism or veganism carefully because it may change your whole worldview (laughs) well i hope more people follow your path and and you make a really important point about I guess the development of the economies of places like India and China, because there's a real risk that they follow the path that we've gone down. They follow the path of fossil fuels and they follow the path of industrial animal agriculture that would offset, you know, and swamp any progress we might make in Canada or in the UK or the US as trying to, you know, reduce our fossil fuel consumption and our animal product consumption as well. So my hope is that those, many of those developing nations, one can tap into that deep, rich history of as you say, vegetarianism, veganism, and often some quite powerful, compassionate animal ethics. If you look at religions like Jainism or Buddhism and others, right, they have much deeper histories of caring about non-humans than many other cultures do. So if they can tap back into those ways of thinking and not abandon that non-human compassion, but also many developing countries are very critically aware of the climate challenge and the zoonotic disease challenges and microbial challenges. So hopefully they are actually recognize those compounding issues as well as the ethics. And they'll also find much more innovative ways to develop alternatives as well. So we'll see, because I think it's all very well for me to sit here in the UK and say, oh, isn't it great? More people have signed up to Veganuary. But until the actual billions and trillions of farmed animals, until those actual statistics start coming down we're not really reducing the amount of suffering in the world so um, we'll see there's much to play for but yeah you set (laughs) an inspirational journey that you followed as well hopefully more of the eight billion people on the planet will will follow us too and maybe i can tempt you to the next step and you'll be wearing one of these (laughs) vegan advocacy t-shirts in the in the near future we'll see how we go we'll pray for that yeah (laughs) i'm sure your mother still is so well, Thank Kevin, you. it's been a it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for taking the time today. It's been great to hear your personal story and your journey, and I hope more people follow it. Before we wrap up, what's the best way of people following you? I know you're on Twitter, for example. Actually, a chapter in the book. I have a Twitter account that I don't use a lot, and fortunately, I haven't been banned yet. <laughs> <laughs> but Facebook, I'm on Facebook a lot, and if you just search my name on Facebook, Kevin Soldana, most of my posts are public anyway. 
Yeah. But And I'm hitting my friend limit on that as well. I've got a little reading out to do. But yeah, Facebook is where I share most of my stuff. I don't have a personal website that I do a lot of uh, writing on. I've got a, a commercial website for my practice and it's... If you have a pet, that's what you might want to yeah, see. And seeing as you're doing remote veterinary work now, you might be getting some worldwide calls into your practice as well. So. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, the rules around having licensure in different countries yeah. and states and provinces <laughs> would preclude that. But no, appreciate that. So you won't be helping me with Luna in the near in the near Oh, future. you're welcome to call me anytime for advice. <laughs> that is very kind. And I'll include the link to your Facebook profile in the show notes for this as well. So thank you so much. I'll let you get on with the rest of your day. I know you're planning a walk in the winter sunshine. So enjoy yes. the rest of your day. And thank you very much. Thank you, Jamie, for having me. And it's great to have you as part of the sentientism community. I'm glad to be there. <laughs> Take care. All right. Okay. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?